Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we are your sons and daughters. Help us today to see Jesus, to thank, be thankful in our hearts for what you've done for us, that we are no longer slaves but heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Pray that you would open our hearts and speak to us through your word. Give Tom grace to preach it well. In Jesus' name we pray. Good morning. I want to talk first to the dads among us, particularly the dads whose dads are still alive on this earth. How would you feel if every time you blew your cool with one of your kids or were a little short-tempered with your wife, your own dad showed up at your house, let himself in with his own key, took off his belt, and gave you a really good spanking. You know, old school, the kind that really hurt. There are some wives out there thinking that that would make your dad the perfect father-in-law. So don't be surprised if your wife suggests that you stop at Home Depot on the way home and get whatever your favorite tool is, because while you're looking for the tool, she's going to be over at the key machine getting a key made in your dad's favorite color. But there's another question that's more to the point. What if that scenario was the only one that would actually change your bad behavior for the better? What if the only motivation that ever actually improved the way you acted as an adult was fear of punishment and shame? What would that say about you? In our passage this morning, Paul presents a powerful contrast between a little toddler and an adult son and heir. And he does so in order to set before us the radical difference between slavery and sonship. First, he speaks of our previous bondage to the weak and worthless externally imposed shadows of righteousness. And then he speaks of the true sonship that belongs to us who belong to Christ. 
He talks about the superiority and the liberating power of knowing God and of being known by God, of living as full sons and heirs of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to show you on that screen what, uh, where we're going to be headed this morning. First, in verses 1 through 7, Paul speaks of a new identity. He talks initially about our, about the old one. That a, he says that a child is as much under bondage as a slave in verses 1 and 2. And then he goes, he says that under the law, when we were under the law, we were slaves. We were like children. And we were not sons. But in Christ, we have been made sons and heirs. And then in verses 8 through 11, he comes to his rebuke in the form of a question. How can you turn back from sonship to slavery? In the first two verses of chapter 4, Paul, once again, as he's done before in this epistle, prefaces a lesson about spiritual, eternal things with an illustration that is drawn from something that's generally observable in the world. And to understand Paul's point in verses 1 and 2, picture in your mind's eye a little child, a toddler. Not just any toddler, but a toddler who happens to be the firstborn son of a very powerful, very wealthy king. That little child would no doubt have a really nice bedroom, lots of great toys, and a bunch of people doting over him. But he would have no more control over his father's assets than a slave in his father's household would have. Even if his net worth on paper as firstborn son of the king was in the billions, he would have no say whatsoever in how all that wealth was invested or spent because he wouldn't have even the beginnings of the maturity to know how to deal with such wealth, how to manage it. And since powerful kings and wealthy kings generally delegated the finer points of child-rearing to special servants, that toddler prince would be as much at the mercy of his appointed guardians or nannies as the slaves in his household were at the mercy of their masters. Everything from the food that child ate to the scheduling of his bedtime would be ultimately determined by someone else, not by him. His boundaries would be externally imposed and not chosen, and that's really the heart of what Paul's getting at here. In verse 3, Paul goes from that word picture, which he's using as a setup, to he starts to get into the real issue. He says that there is a radical difference between living that way and living as a child of God. He says in verse 3, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now the phrase the elemental or elementary things, shows up twice in this passage in verses 3 and 9, just as it shows up twice in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 20, where Paul is actually making much the same point. If you compare those two passages, it becomes pretty clear 
that what Paul means by the elementary things of the world is external, surface-level religiosity. It's do's and don'ts and ceremonies and special days and dietary restrictions and physical self-denial and any other such thing that looks really religious but actually doesn't have any necessary connection with what's in the heart of the person who's doing them. A little later in this passage in Galatians 4, Paul says that these weak and worthless elemental things include such things as the observance of days and months and seasons and years. Now that could include the pagan religious festivals and events that were common to the Gentiles in the region of Galatia. But considering Paul's recurring theme throughout this epistle, exhorting the believers in Galatia to flee from the heresy of the Judaizers, I believe that Paul is talking here essentially about Jewish religious festivals, holy days, and dietary rules, just as he clearly is in Colossians 2. Because in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, he says, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day is a clue. (laughs) He's talking about things in the law. He says that those things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul's harsh complaint against the Judaizers is that they were trying to get Gentile Christians to adhere to to the law which God had designed to point to Jesus. He says that all these religious practices are a mere shadow of what is to come and the substance belongs to Christ. To require men to cling to the picture once the reality had come and to equate those external religious practices with actual righteousness was a nullification of grace. It was a return to a way of thinking and living that was actually never capable of getting the job done when it came to making men righteous in the eyes of God. It was a return in effect to the ABCs, to things that were not supposed to make men righteous, but were supposed to show them their unrighteousness so that we would turn to Jesus Christ in faith and be clothed in His righteousness. Colossians 2.23 says that in talking about the value of these external religious practices, it says these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Like circumcision, all such external religious efforts look good, but they do not and they cannot change the heart of the man who's doing it. Their only value comes when they rightly picture a real transformation that has already occurred in the heart of the person who's doing them, as the Lord's Supper is supposed to do each Sunday. That's actually actually what circumcision was for by God's design all along. In Romans 4, verse 11, Paul says that Abraham, who was justified by faith in the promise of God, received the sign of circumcision 
a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might become the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. To who? To those who believe. When an eight-day-old male child in Israel was circumcised, that change in his body did not make him a son of Abraham by God's reckoning. Instead, it was to serve as a tangible, ever-present reminder to that boy as he grew up that Abraham's circumcision was the outward sign of an inward righteousness imputed by God, declared to him, credited to his account when Abraham believed the promise of God which is fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. But many of the Galatian believers were buying into the Judaizers' lie that said it worked the other way. That circumcision and all manner of other acts of external obedience were the things that God actually cared about. Paul's point here is that when a believer embraces that lie, he is turning back the clock. He's throwing away the privileges and blessings and freedoms of full sonship and he's reverting back to bondage and child, childishness. Have you ever tried modifying the behavior of a toddler by appealing to his sense of principle? without bothering with such ignoble things as punishment or reward? If so, how did that work out for you? I I know the answer, of course, because a toddler cares about exactly two things. What makes him feel good and what doesn't. Now, this may come as a shock to some young mothers in, in, in the crowd. I doubt that it'll be a shock because you all are pretty savvy. But your toddler certainly enjoys your snuggles. But trust me on this, he does not share your values. When he does obey you, it's not because he's convinced that your character, your way of thinking and doing things is worthy to be copied. It's not because of his deep desire to show your character off to others. I hate to tell you, but it's not even because he loves you so much that he can't stand the thought of hurting you. In fact, there's really just one thing about you that impacts your toddler's behavior, and that's how you respond when he does stuff. If you're consistent, he quickly learns to do those things that bring him a pleasant response from you, which might include a hug. And to avoid doing, or at least to get really good at hiding, (laughs) the things that bring him an unpleasant response from you. That, beloved, is how we all started. And we got started in that mode right out of the chute. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Externally imposed punishment and reward are the only things that work for changing the behavior of a little child. But if that is still true of that child after he has become an adult, what does that make him? It makes him an overgrown child. It also makes him a slave addicted like a meth head to externally imposed boundaries 
that have nothing to do with the heart of love for God or for his fellow man. A child, whether he admits it or not, desperately longs for clear and consistently imposed boundaries because he has no internal compass. Without those boundaries, his world is chaos because he's not capable of making sense of it himself. I was in a checkout line at Walmart a while back, and I got to see a great example of that. There was a little boy a couple of checkout lanes over who kept grabbing stuff off the hooks, and his mother kept taking them out of his hand and putting them back on the hooks. After a little while of that going on, the child launched into a force-five tantrum, and he started screaming at his mother at the top of his lungs. She barely finished checking out because of the rage that her son was in. And then just ahead of me in my checkout line, there was another mother and a little boy. The boy quietly asked his mother if he could have this colorful bag of candy that had been strategically placed right at eye level. His mother smiled and said no. And the child dropped the subject and started talking to his mom about something else. Now, I can absolutely guarantee you that that wasn't because this was just an unusually compliant child. It was because that child had learned at some previous point that it would have cost him dearly if he had acted the way that other kid acted. His boundaries were clearly drawn by his mother and they made sense of his world. But for a mature adult son of God, such a dependence on externally imposed boundaries and constraints is bondage. An adult son of God longs not for clearer boundaries, but for a clearer, deeper knowledge of God. What we left behind when we came to faith in Jesus Christ was slavery. Not just slavery to sin, but slavery to weak and worthless rules-based religion. In verses 4 through 7, Paul moves from what we were like before to who we are now in Christ. And his declaration in these verses is just amazing. (laughs) He turns our entire focus onto Jesus. Absolutely everything about the miraculous transformation that takes us from being foolish children enslaved to outwardly imposed rules and moves us to being sons and heirs of God who delight in pleasing our Father. Every bit of that transformation is accomplished by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of it was planned by God from eternity past so that He could create a people for His own possession. Listen to Paul's words in verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. As as my brother pointed out this morning in the worship, all of human history revolves around two instances of what God calls the fullness of the time. Christ's first coming and Christ's Second coming. If you study the period of history leading up to the incarnation and earthly life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it becomes evident 
that God brought many, many things together amazingly to set the stage for that first coming of His Son from heaven to earth. There was a limited window of time during which Jesus could have addressed such vast gatherings as He did for all the great annual festivals that revolved around the temple in Jerusalem that are recorded in the Gospels because before the Roman Empire, it wasn't that easy for Jews in remote regions to get to Jerusalem for those festivals. Many of them had no way to do so. And in the late 40s A.D., the Jews were run out of Jerusalem, and then in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. And there had rarely, if ever, been a time in which a man like the Apostle Paul could have so freely traveled across such a broad spectrum of Gentile peoples and cultures. Even God's orchestration of the logistics, the nuts and bolts for advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ are amazing. After the scattering of the nations by the hand of God at the Tower of Babel, long before Abraham was born, there had never been a time until the advent of the Roman Empire in which so much of the world was under one common written language. It was the far-reaching conquests of Alexander the Great followed by the conquest of Greece by Rome that God had used to set up that commonality of language that paved the way for the explosive growth and spread of the gospel. The time of Christ's first coming and of the birth of His church was an exceedingly unusual time. Masterfully orchestrated by God to accomplish His eternal purposes. Galatians 4.4 says that in the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's what you call a theologically loaded statement. Jesus is the very Son of God. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Hebrews 1.3 He is fully God, but He is also fully man having come into the world as a child born of a woman. He is the one in whom, as Paul says in Colossians, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, in human flesh. He is fully and perfectly God. He is fully and perfectly man. And according to Galatians 4.4, this Jesus, this unique God-man, was born under the law. Now that's really important that Jesus was born under the law. As the perfect man, Jesus was perfectly obedient to all that His Father required of Him, all the way to the point of His death on a cross. And that obedience was true of Him even though He was born and lived His entire earthly life under the law of Moses. The same law that Paul just declared in the previous chapter sealed our condemnation because we could not keep it. But Jesus kept that law perfectly. Jesus is the one and only lawkeeper. He is the only one, the only man, whose righteousness was actually vindicated by the law, proven by His perfect compliance with the law of God. For all the rest of mankind, 
The law proves our sinfulness, proves our desperate need for him to fulfill the law. And it does so to drive us to come humbly with empty hands to trust in Jesus Christ that he may be our righteousness. According to Galatians 4, verse 5, Jesus came from heaven to earth. He was born under the law in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, he fulfilled God's requirement of righteousness that we could never fulfill so that we could have what he always had, sonship. Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. Now, who does that refer to? Who are those who were under the law? Well, the answer, biblical answer is all of us, not just Jews. Every last man, woman, and child of us until we come to Christ are under the requirement of the law. The law was given to Israel through Moses. But because the law proceeds from and reflects the character of God, we're all accountable to it. And so in Romans 3, after, right after telling us that there is none righteous, not even one, there is no one who does good, not even one, Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, and listen to this, that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Every mouth, all the world, no flesh, it should be pretty apparent that this is a universal truth. The law proved all of us to be shut up, locked up under sin and closed mouth before God. Having no defense for ourselves, no righteousness to bring before God, And that was absolutely necessary in order that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Galatians 3.22 And that's how we receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. (laughs) See, we're not born as sons of God. We begin as enemies of God, rebels against God, utterly condemned and utterly helpless to reconcile ourselves to Him. But when we come to trust in Jesus Christ alone, God adopts us. And He grants to us the full rights and privileges that belong to His firstborn, Jesus Christ. And that very identity as adopted sons of God is the identity to which Paul appeals and that he calls true of the Galatian believers the very people that he's scolding in this epistle. Verses 6 and 7, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So I pointed out last week, there are no second-born sons in the household of God. There are no third- or fourth-born sons. There are no daughters excluded from the inheritance 
of the sons. There is only one inheritance, and it is the inheritance that belongs to God's firstborn. The one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ. We, who are in Christ, have been made joint heirs with Christ of His inheritance. And that glorious, incomparable inheritance, that wealth that makes all other wealth valueless, is God Himself. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8.17 Our inheritance is eternal relationship with the God of glory. In Jesus' mighty prayer to His Father the night before He died in our place, He declared in John 17.23 that God loves us just as He loves Jesus. And we get to spend eternity discovering the infinite depths of that love. Never reaching the end of it. The love of God toward us and our grateful response of love toward God now control and motivate us to a life that delights our Father. In verses 8 through 11, all of this gets really practical. Having set before the Galatian believers this marvelous reality of their identity as adopted sons of God and heirs with Jesus Christ, Paul now presents his third stern rebuke in this book, in this epistle. And that rebuke is in the form of a question directed to the very same adopted sons of God to whom he's writing all of these things. He says, We formerly did not know God. We were slaves to those which are by nature no gods. And so here I believe he's including the pagan religions from which these Galatians came. But he says, Now, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we have come to know God. Or rather, to be known by God. We did not know God. Now we have come to know God. We have come to be known by God. And he poses a soul-piercing question. Now that you have become sons and heirs of God, now that you personally know God and are known by God, how is it, how is it that you turn back from that glorious sonship to your previous slavery? In Christ alone, we have entered into eternal relationship with God. We are now known by God as a loving Father knows His children, but with a love that surpasses all others. God knows us fully, personally, intimately, with a fierce and jealous affection more intense than any that we have ever known. Have you ever tried to hide something from your dad, something that you did because you were afraid that if if he knew about it, it would mess with your relationship with him? Well, guess what? God has seen everything you have ever done. He has witnessed every thought you have ever had, and he has heard every word that you have ever spoken. He is far more aware of those things than you can even remember. And He knows you better than you know yourself. And if you belong to Him through faith in His Son, He loves you with a love so deep, so fiercely protective, so perfect, that nothing in all of His creation, least of all you, 
can ever separate you from. In Christ alone, we are known by God and we know God. Personally. Intimately. As the one who alone is worthy of our most unreserved affections. The Spirit of Christ who now dwells within us cries out, Abba, Father. The deeply personal, deeply affectionate address of a child to the Father whom he loves more than all else. The more fully and personally we come to know God, the more zealously we love Him and desire to serve Him. To do the things that delight Him, that honor Him, that advance His kingdom. As sons, with all the blessings of full sonship, as co-heirs with Christ, we now live to honor the one that we trust, the one we love, the one who loved us and delivered Himself up for us. And that changes the way we live. The married man who knows God and loves God does not say in his heart, I better not let anyone, especially anyone from my church, catch me gazing too intently at a beautiful woman who's not my wife. Because that would really mess with my reputation. He does not say, as long as I'm careful to cover my tracks, my pornography addiction really won't hurt anybody. Instead, he says, as Joseph said when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? He says in his heart, my Savior is ever faithful to his bride, his church, that he redeemed to be his own treasure. So by his power, I will be faithful to my bride. I will show my wife the same steadfast faithfulness, the same forgiving, forbearing, self-denying love that Christ proved toward me at the cross and that He shows to me daily. And when that man stumbles in some way, as we all do, in some measure, many times, when he does something that violates the love that God has poured out toward him, it is that very love of God for him and the loving response of the new man in him toward God that compels him to return to faithfully loving his wife. It's the relationship that drives the transformation of behavior. There is a radical, revolutionary difference between those two ways of life. In fact, one is the way of death. The first is slavery to a loveless, superficial, external, empty shell of supposed righteousness. The second is a consuming, controlling, passionate affection for the one who loved you and laid down his life to make you his eternal inheritance. The one who has promised to spend the rest of eternity listen to this, to spend the rest of eternity showering you with the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 said. We all stumble in many ways. But the love that God has poured out upon us and the response of love that we as redeemed sons of God have for our Redeemer, our Father, 
controls us, and calls us back. In 2 Corinthians 5, after defending his own ministry against the accusations of those who, quote, take pride in appearance and not in heart, Paul then speaks of the very different kind of motivation that is true of him and of his co-workers for Christ. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. And then he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul is talking about a powerful obedience, an all-in, sold-out obedience that is entirely motivated and controlled by one thing, the love of Christ. Now I want you to hear me if I put you to sleep, beloved. If you say that that's not practical... If you say that such an all-consuming, controlling affection for God that works itself out in authentic and joyful obedience is unattainable in this life because we're still sinners, then I say to you on the authority of God's living and active Word that you are wrong. God sent His own beloved Son to the cross to make that life your life. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Not later, now. In fact, that whole chapter in Titus 2 is about the calling to an all-consuming zeal for the redeemed people of God that shows Him off. It's about our passion to adorn the doctrine of our great God and Savior by our words and by our actions. Now, today, God sent His own beloved Son to the cross to make that life your life. It's not our methods or strategies or accountability groups that make us zealous to do the things that delight God. Now, don't get me wrong. All of those things can be very useful instruments in the hands of God. But if we're counting on any of those things to produce sustainable godliness in us, we are putting our money in the wrong bank. If it is not the love of Christ that controls us, then it is the absence of that love that controls us. And there is no checklist or program that will get you to a more pervasive and controlling love of Jesus Christ. Attending church more regularly, tithing more sacrificially, witnessing more boldly, teaching a Sunday school class, even selling all your worldly possessions and becoming a missionary overseas will not in and of themselves grow your love for God. All of those things are pleasing in God's sight and are powerfully useful in His hands when they flow from hearts that know Him and trust Him and love Him. Those are effects of that love, not the cause. What will grow our love for God? 
You think that's an important question? What will grow our love for God? The knowledge of the hope. To rightly and personally know God is to irresistibly love and trust God and obey Him. To behold God is to be transformed by that beholding. Just read Isaiah 6. You want to know how to invest your time and energy and effort in the things that will actually grow your obedience to God? Invest your time and energy and effort in the things that will grow your personal knowledge of God. There is a reason that Paul puts lengthy theological passages before and after every key exhortation and every critical rebuke in this letter and in all of his letters. There's a reason, for instance, that the book of Ephesians has no imperatives in the first three chapters and dozens of imperatives in in the latter three chapters. It's because knowing what you're supposed to do without knowing God Himself is useless to produce godliness in you. When I hear believers, young or old, and it's it's mostly younger ones who say this, when I hear them assert that the problem with the church is that we spend too much time studying the Bible and not enough time being doers of it, I cry inside. Because they are absolutely right about the second half of that assertion and they are catastrophically wrong about the first half. As Tim Keller says, you can know the Bible without knowing God, but you will never know God without knowing the Bible. Too much study, too much familiarity with Scripture is not the church's problem, beloved. Every single one, every single one of the dear brothers and sisters in Christ that I have ever known who have persevered in following Christ for decades and who have stayed the course in serving the body and loving the lost even after losing a child or being terribly maimed in a wreck, or holding a lifelong companion's hand while her life left her body, or being betrayed by a wife or husband in the worst possible way. Every single one of them who has persevered in obedience even in the face of grievous suffering has had the habit of life of beholding God through His incomparable Word. Every single one of them. And I can't tell you how many I have seen crash and burn precisely because they have not had that habit. Sure, there are some who become mostly useless to God and perhaps even walk away from God after spending thousands of hours in the Bible. But those are not the ones who picked up their Bibles daily with the purpose of beholding and knowing the lover of their souls. I'm not talking about a new rule to replace old ones. I'm not talking about an obligation to get up at the same time every morning and spend X minutes reading your Bible. I'm talking about your necessary food and mind. I suspect everyone here is pretty careful not to miss too many consecutive meals. But many of us, without even a thought starve ourselves 
the necessary food of God's word that the Holy Spirit faithfully quickens to conform us to Christ daily and to empower us to actually live and act as his redeemed ambassadors in this world. As a people zealous and fully equipped for every good deed. And of course, there are other ways that you behold God and that you see what He's like and how He does things. The Holy Spirit inhabits your praise offered up to God. And He changes you through that praise. Your prayers of petition, your requests to God, incline your heart to a greater dependence on God. Your friendships with other believers who love God become your windows into the very heart of God as you watch those fellow saints act in keeping with His character revealed in His Word. And your steps of obedience that insert you right into the midst of God's work to love the lost and to advance His gospel are the stages upon which you get to watch how God does things here and now. Those are the things that will grow your obedience because those are the things that will grow your knowledge of the holy. In the last verse of this passage, Galatians 4.11, Paul says, I fear for you that I have labored over you in vain. His fear is not... His fear is not that they'll lose the righteous standing that belongs to them as believers in Jesus Christ. His fear is that they will forget who they are in Christ and they will turn back to who they aren't. That instead of living every day by faith in the Son of God who loved them and delivered Himself up for them, they will muddle through day by day clinging to the weak and worthless works of the flesh as if those works had any value to anyone. Every generation of Christ's church has struggled against that temptation. And you and I are no different. But even when our neglect of the things of God causes us to forget for a time our high calling as sons and heirs, that calling remains changed, unchanged, and so does the one who called us. And it is that new, redeemed identity as sons of God to which God continually appeals as He faithfully calls us back to Himself. God continues to be at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 he calls us back to Himself, to the One we have come to know, to the One who perfectly knows us and perfectly loves us. Dear Father, we ask that You would teach us to hold fast to this magnificent calling as sons and heirs of God. We ask You to make every backward glance, every flirtation with weak and worthless things, be recognized as slavery to which we simply cannot return because we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ forever. We pray this in His precious name.